The Dental Download Podcast is your source for insight into dental school, conversations with dentists, specialists, and leaders in the industry. With new episodes every Monday morning, I'm your host, Haley Schultz. Let's get into this week's episode. All right. Hello, everyone. We're back with another guest here today. And I'm going to let Dr. Nolan introduce himself a little bit. Can you just talk about your background and what you're doing now? Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, as Haley said, my name is Nolan. I graduated from University of Michigan in 2020. And then I moved to Chicago, which is where I still am. Um, recently became a practice owner. Um, originally, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago, so not too far from where I bought my practice. Um, yeah, I grew up around the area, went to Michigan, and then as soon as I graduated, just came back, was an associate for three years at a couple different places, which I'm sure we'll touch upon, and then uh, most recently just bought a practice uh, two months ago. Yeah, I'd love to kind of look at things chronologically, probably makes the most sense looking back on your journey a little bit. Yeah. So back in dental school, were you thinking I'm for sure going to be a practice owner one day? 100%. It's actually a big reason why I went into dentistry as compared to most other fields that I was thinking of at the time when I was in high school. Um, so yeah, I, I knew pretty much in high school when I decided that I wanted to do dentistry that I was also going to own a practice. With all the different things that people talk about that make them intimidated to go into dentistry in general, let alone ownership these days, were any of those things concerning to you initially and have they been problems for you? Um, so can you give me any like specifics? Like what exactly? Yeah, I guess people to? are just thinking is private practice dying, are solo owners is that going to have a future of being successful? Do you need to be big groups, multi-practices to be successful? Yeah, so I think the biggest fear most dentists have currently is that practices are, private practices being consolidated and turning into corporate dentistry. And in a way that's true, um, I remember reading an article, and I might have my percentages off here um, a bit, but I believe about 10, 10 or 15 years ago, the amount of private practices in the United States was close to, it was somewhere in the 90, it was like 90 or 95 percent. If you take a look at that number now in 2023, that number, the number of private practices is about 75 percent. Uh, compared to DSOs. Um, so the trend is definitely that like DSOs are becoming more and more prominent, but I think that there's always going to be a space for private practice because you can't really turn dentistry into pharmacy where like, for example, pharmacists uh, that work at Walgreens, they can also ring you up for all the other stuff that you buy well, you know like a bag of chips as well as your prescriptions that you get for the day in dentistry it's you develop a very close bond with your dentist and so 
it's really difficult to um, get rid of private practice. And so there's going to be a market cap for DSOs. At least that's what I foresee the future to be. Now, what that market cap is will be 50%, 60 70 I can't tell you. But I think as long as you're a good clinician, and even more importantly, you're just more personable, you're more extroverted, and you actually care about your patients, I think you'll have a successful practice, even if you're surrounded by DSOs. So um, was I ever concerned about that? Maybe a little bit in the beginning, but not really um, anymore. Um, it's something that I've looked into and researched and I feel pretty comfortable um, with private practice and the future of private practice. Yeah, I've heard a lot of what you were saying as well and that at a certain point, like DSOs can only grow so much for similar reasons to what you were saying. I was just curious what your thoughts were. Yeah. So back when you were in dental school and you knew you wanted to go into ownership, were there any things that you did during school to get you some extra business knowledge or leadership knowledge? Yeah. Um, the simple answer is no. <laughs> I think in dental school, the only thing that I focused on was just the quizzes and, and the tests that, that we had on a daily basis. So, you know, there really wasn't any time to even think about practice ownership and and more so, I think it wasn't just Michigan, but I think uh, a lot of dental schools, they sort of never touch upon practice ownership. And it's almost as if you can't even ask professors about it. Um, so I did a lot of my, uh, or the knowledge that I gained on how to run a practice pretty much came with just the associateships that I had. I would ask the owner dentist, hey, do you mind if I take a look at the financials? You know, can I see how the practice is doing? Can I um, order some supplies? Can you like teach me how to make an account for Patterson and how do I order supplies? Um, I would ask them questions like, hey, what if, you know, so-and-so quit? How would you look for a new assistant? Um, so just, just things like that when you're an associate, I think is a lot more helpful rather than when you're in dental school. I think when you're in dental school, just focus on school and having a good time. And when you were an associate at these practices, learning from the owners, did you find that it was a weird dynamic to get into that relationship where they were letting you in on the details of the practice and learning how to run the business, even though you weren't necessarily the one planning to take it over? Yeah, so I was kind of lucky because my first associateship was actually for my mentor who got me into dentistry in the first place when I was in high school. He was the first dentist and the only dentist that I shadowed um, all throughout high school, college, and even dental school. So when I graduated, he gave me my first job. and. So at that point, I had known him for, gosh, maybe like seven, eight, eight years. So I didn't really feel um, awkward asking him any questions, and neither did he feel awkward showing me things. In fact, he sort of encouraged it. Um, so not really with that. And then my most recent associateship, uh, I was actually supposed to buy that practice 
and then things kind of fell by the wayside. And so when we started out, he was also like, hey, listen, I'm an open book, you know, whatever you want to take a look at, whatever you want to buy for the practice, um, I'll show you everything. And so he did. Um, unfortunately, it just didn't work out with the, towards the end of me actually purchasing the practice. So yeah, I kind of got lucky. But what I'll tell you is, as long as you're an associate there, I, I and you have that inspiration or you have that desire to be an owner, I, I think you should ask all the questions that you can while you're an associate. And they may say, hey, listen, I don't feel comfortable sharing that right now. And that's not really a knock towards you. That's just, you know, that's just the way the owner might be. But I never really ran into any issues of them saying, I can't tell you that. And it seems like for the most part, you definitely learned a lot through your associate experiences in the positive realm. Did you take anything from your experiences working as an associate that you're like, okay, in my office, we're going to do X, Y, Z totally different? Mm, not really. So, I mean, I learned a lot actually from the negative experiences in my associateships. Um, I messed up a ton my my first like two, two and a half years um, out of school. Um, and then when I bought this office, so Dr. E, who's the guy that sold his practice to me, um, he's staying on for six months and he's sort of showing me how he's been doing things for the last 33 years. And I plan on continuing doing pretty much all of it the same way, just because he's ran such a successful office and it's fee for service as well. Um, you know, there's really no point in fixing what's not broken. Right. So, um, I wouldn't really say that I've, yeah, like I don't really plan on changing anything, at least in my office, compared to how Dr. E ran things um, before uh, I bought it. So you mentioned it was a fee-for-service office, obviously successful. Mm -hmm. You get along with the doctor you bought it from. You agree on their philosophy. What were some of the other things that you were looking for when you were trying to figure out what office you wanted to buy? Yeah, so one thing that I'll tell everyone is, and I wish I had the list on me, but make a list of basically what I call non-negotiables that you're looking for in an office, right? Things that have to be there in order for you to even consider purchasing that office. And don't make it too exhaustive, right? So I had, if I remember correctly, I had about only about four or five bullet points. Um, so don't have things, don't have, don't have like 20, 30 things because you're, you're never going to find an office like that. So if I try and remember, I had an office that was, I want an office that was only doing bread and butter dentistry. Reason being, I do a little bit more than bread and butter dentistry. I do some specialty procedures. And so that would be a way to increase production and collections right off the bat, right? Um, the second criteria that I was looking for was I wanted an office that had at least four operatories. Um, four to six was my sweet spot. And the reason for that is right now I see myself being a solo practitioner for the rest of my career. But that can easily change. And if it does change, it's better to have enough operatories to accommodate an associate rather than you're 10 years into your career 
and you only have um, you know, three operatories. And then now you're looking at maybe moving to a whole new building or whatnot, right? So four to six was kind of my sweet spot, um, although I bought an office that only had three. So we can get into that. But um, And then I was looking for an office that did at least $750,000 in collections. And the reason for that was that was right around the um, production that I was at um, towards my, the end of my last associateship. So it wouldn't make sense to, let's say, buy an office that um, was doing 300000 in collections a year because you'd make more as an associate, right? So if you're going to be an owner and take on that extra responsibility, you should also be compensated fairly for that extra responsibility, if that makes sense. Um, and I forget my fourth criteria, but yeah, those were three that I had. Some of the things you mentioned made me think of some follow-up questions. So you mm -hmm. said, as far as you can tell, you want to be the solo doc at your office. What is your reasoning for that? And maybe how can someone work to do some self-reflection to see if they'd be better suited in a practice with multiple doctors, lots of collaboration, or if they're better in a smaller solo office? Yeah, good question. Um, for me, I sort of just like, uh, I think when you add an associate, again, you have an added responsibility. Um, I'm pretty laid back. Um, if you take a look at, for example, my schedule on a day-to-day -day basis, you'd, you'd definitely kind of see my personality in that schedule and how laid back the office is and how laid back the schedule is. Um, and then I also sort of just like running things my own way. And while an associate is an employee, I think that they're an they would be an integral part of how your office runs and how successful it becomes. And so even though they're an associate, they're almost kind of a partner in a way where you have to take in their input. You have to sort of see what makes them tick, what kind of procedures they like, make sure the schedule is filled um, with those kinds of procedures for them. You have to do marketing for them. Um, so those were things that I just, right now, at least in my career, I just didn't really want to deal with or don't want to think about. Um, and But there might be people out there who you love the collaboration aspect of it. Maybe if you run across a difficult case, you love that somebody is you know, right next door for you to kind of bounce ideas off of. Maybe um, if you're really business-minded, you maybe like the added income that you get from adding an associate. Um, so, yeah, those are things to all consider. And for, I would assume Chicago is a pretty saturated market of dentists. So what was your search process like of finding this office and I guess what made you land on the specific one to purchase? Yeah. So like I said, I, I, so here's what I did. I reached out to every broker that I knew in the Chicagoland area. And if memory serves correctly, I think there was about five of them. 
And so I just emailed all of them, kind of gave them a little bit of background information about me. I gave them the list of criteria that I had. And I told them, you know, find me an office that, that fits this criteria, that fits my personality, um, and that the retiring doctor that you think maybe has a similar philosophy of care. Um, and of course, you know, the brokers, all they care about is just selling an office. So even though you give them all that, they just send you every office imaginable. Um, so I did that. I reached out to the brokers. I um, sent out mailers. So I basically made like postcards. Um, and I w think I have one. Maybe I could send you a picture on your email and you could put it up or whatever. But basically sent out postcards to just a bunch of random offices. So <laughs> I kind of just looked at offices in all of Chicago and there's, there's, you know, thousands. Um, so I narrowed it down to specific areas of Chicago and, and suburbs that I'd want to practice. And then I Googled like all the dentists in those areas and I went on their website and anyone that looked to be older, maybe 60 plus, I would write their address down and send them a postcard basically just saying, hey, my name is Nolan Patel. Um, I graduated in 2020. I'm thinking of buying an office. If you're thinking of selling yours, you know, here's my contact information. Um, so I did that. And then I posted advertisements on the Illinois State Dental Society page, the Chicago Dental Society page. Um, and then I think a few other websites, which I can't remember. And then the final thing I did was um, the ADA has a practice transitions website. So it's basically, it, it's almost kind of like a dating app where they have you fill out a bio of yourself and they match you to other dentists in the area that you're located in that are looking to retire. And so they kind of, you know, set you up that way and then you can go out and maybe meet them at their office or meet them for coffee and sort of discuss um, if you guys would be interested in, uh, if you would be interested in purchasing their office and if they would be interested in selling their office to you. So those were all the things that I did in order to find the office that I'm now at. I know, obviously, when you're working with a broker, they get some commission or whatever the mm -hmm. correct word is when you end up buying a practice for these other platforms, like to post on like the Illinois State Dental Association and stuff. Did you have to put money into that initially? You do, but it's extremely cheap. So if I remember correctly, I think in order to post on the Illinois State Dental Society webpage and the Chicago State, uh, the Chicago Dental Society webpage. I think it was like 50 bucks each and they keep your advertisement on there for, it was either two or three months. So it's well worth the money. I mean, right, what's $50 if you end up finding your office um, that you're gonna work at for the next 30 plus years. Um, and then also the broker, they do take a commission, but they take a commission from the seller. So they won't ever take money from you as the buyer. But in a way, you kind of pay for it anyways, because some brokers, they'll 
kind of jack up the prices a bit so they can, you know, their 10% a little bit better. Um, but yeah. If you're comfortable, I'd love to talk a little bit about financing for a practice purchase and just like preparing yourself for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In general, when you're working as an associate, trying to save up to have some cash reserves on hand and then starting to apply for a practice loan and everything, like how did you know that you were financially ready to get into buying a practice? Yeah. Um, so what I did was I reached out to banks and there's specific banks so that really deal with dental loans. So um, for example, Provide, which is a dental specific lender through Fifth Third Bank, um, Bank of America, um, PNC, and then there's oh, there's one other. I think it's Huntington. I don't know if they're only in Chicago or not. But anyways, there's dental specific lenders and you can find it online if you Google it. So I reached out to them and sort of asked them, hey, listen, if, you know, let's say I'm interested in buying a $700,000 practice or a million dollar practice, what are you guys specifically looking for in terms of uh, you know, what, what do I need to have in order to secure that kind of loan? And pretty much all of them will tell you that you should have at least 10% of the practice's value um, in, in cash and assets. So you could have it in your brokerage account, you could have it in a savings account, you could have it, you know, $100,000 sitting underneath your mattress, as long as you have 10% of the value of the practice, banks feel pretty comfortable giving you that sort of loan. The other thing that they look for is what sort of production have you done in years past? So for example, if your yearly production as an associate is, let's say 400,000, and you're looking to buy a $2 million practice, they're probably going to be a little bit hesitant, right? So make sure as, when you're an associate that you're actually keeping track of your numbers on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis. What are you producing? What are you collecting? Um, with that being said, really any bank will give you a loan. So I, I had um, a friend who he reached out to the dental-specific lenders all of them sort of brushed him off. Um, and then he reached out to Chase Bank and they gave him a loan. So I will say that, you know, in a way it's really easy to get finance for a practice. But if you actually go through a dental specific lender, which I recommend, then it can be they They scrutinize you a little bit more and, and they kind of make sure everything is right um, on your end financially before they give you a loan. And in terms of what you were buying, are you, did you purely buy the practice, like the patients, the equipment for this, or did you also buy real estate in this case? Yeah. So I just bought the practice and everything that came with the practice, right? All the equipment and whatnot. Um, at that time when we were writing the 
bill of sale. Um, the landlord did re reach out to me and say that she wanted to sell the building to me as well. Um, I told her no at that time just because I wasn't quite sure. Um, I, I didn't know how the cash flow would be for me at that time, right? I, I didn't know how much I would actually make. I didn't know what the what my production would be, if patients would stay, if patients were going to leave. Um, those are all things I was a little bit scared of. So I told her no at that time, but things have been going pretty well so far now. And she reached out again asking if I wanted to buy the building. So we are talking about that. So maybe soon, maybe by the end of the year. And is it a building solely with your operatories in it or are there other tenants? Yeah, so there's a storefront level, like the bottom level is all uh, professional offices. So for example, on the um, north end of the building is me. And then if you go door to door from there, it, it's there's actually a lot of dental offices. Um, and then above us, there's condominiums. So there's seven floors of condos. Wow, that's a sounds like a big venture, but that's exciting for sure. So um, our land, so the condos are owned, so I, I wouldn't okay. have anything to do with the condos. Um, as well as, I'm only in talks of purchasing my unit. I I really okay. have no interest in yeah purchasing all the other storefront level buildings there. Okay, I was going to say that would be a whole other job being a landlord for all of that. But yeah. some people are really into the real estate. Like I'm in a real estate dentist's Facebook group and it's definitely an interesting avenue to go, but it seems like a full-time gig. And I don't know how you manage being a dentist on top of all that. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's there's definitely a lot of dentists who venture out into real estate. And I think it's a great idea, but I think you should focus on getting your practice right first, because that's going to be the engine that sort of drives all your other ventures anyways. So make sure your practice is kind of firing on all cylinders and then think about everything else. At least that's my two cents. And you were talking about keeping track of your production and trying to be kind of on top of things so that you can be more appealing when you're going to request to get a loan out. Is there anything you did in particular after graduating that you feel like really helped with your speed and scope of procedures? Or was it just literally more practice, more time, some mentorship? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I think the, the best thing that I did and the worst thing that I did was I worked for a DSO for a year. And it was the best thing that I did because it really helped me get my speed up. When you're forced to see, you know, 20, 25 patients a day, you can't take two hours doing a crown prep. You can't take two hours doing, you know, number 19 MO. You, you have to get in there, do a good job, and, and get the patient out of there. And so I think working for a DSO that first year was really beneficial because it helped me get my basic treatment planning skills up. It helped me get my um, basic restorative skills up. I really learned how to become proficient at extraction. So I was working on the south side of Chicago where pretty much there is no, you don't give a patient the option of a root canal. It's 
extraction. Um, and so I did full mouth extractions pretty much, gosh, it felt like one a day at least. Um, so those basic skills that you sort of learn in dental school, but you're still not confident in, were kind of perfected in that DSO setting for me. But also you hit your ceiling rather quickly in a DSO and you get burnt out really quickly. And so it was also, you know, one of the worst things that I did. But yeah, so did I answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, it definitely did. That you basically got better through the work itself, and because you were in a setting that pushed you. Yeah. So just to wrap up before we finish things here, is there anything else you really think is helpful for people to start thinking about, or things that you did now that you have transitioned into ownership in terms of any updated marketing, any? thing with leadership and kind of the team development that's already there, like getting yourself acclimated with the team. That's one of the things I always think about um, when it comes to an acquisition is like that transition of leadership and I guess like respect and hierarchy when you come in as like a younger doctor. Yeah. So I bought the practice on a Friday, no, on a Wednesday and my first day was next day thursday and that morning the previous owner told everyone that worked in the office that he sold the practice so i walked in and he pretty much told everyone that this is the new guy that that now owns the practice um and so it was a little bit of a shock for them in the beginning but i sort of set all of them down on friday um i got them all little gifts just as, you know, kind of a way to break the ice. And then I just told him, I said, hey, listen, you know, Dr. Engelman, Dr. E, he's run this practice for the last 31 years very successfully. I don't plan on changing anything. I want to be an active observer, which means I want you guys to teach me everything you know about this practice, about the patients, about how to run the business part of it, and I'll learn, I'll adjust to you guys. And I think when they heard that, it was a sigh of relief. Um, and then also, I guess, I don't really consider myself a boss. Um, I, I kind of tell all the hygienists, my assistant, everyone that we're all just all co colleagues. Um, I tell them, you know, like what I do on the weekend and like the funny stories that I have. And right, I show them the human side of me. Um, and I think they really come to appreciate that. So, and then the other side of that is also if for whatever reason you don't get along with your staff and they end up leaving one by one, um, don't panic. It's okay. In fact, when you acquire an office, you're going to have staff members that leave within the first two years. And it's not surprising if all of them leave. You'll find replacements. You'll find a new hygienist. You'll find a new assistant. You'll find a new front desk person. It's all okay. Just, you know, be the best dentist that you possibly can be. Be the best owner that you possibly can be. Be nice to everyone, and everything will work out. Would you have kept waiting and waiting to find the right practice if you felt like this one, if this one didn't exist, I guess, let's say? 
like, or would you eventually have compromised and then went in somewhere and tried to make some changes? Yeah. So this particular office, um, or hold on, like I've been looking for an office for about a year and a half before I actually found the one that I bought. Um, and I did have to compromise on that list that I made, right? So again, the thing that I said of, oh, I was looking for four to six operatories. Well, my office only has three. Um, and I think I learned that no office is going to be perfect, right? There, there might be an office that fits all your criteria, but is completely outdated. Or there might be an office that looks modern, but doesn't have... Um, the best uh, equipment and, and whatnot. I think that at some point you have to stop searching for the perfect office and just take a dive into the opportunities that you have in front of you and pick the best one out of those. And that's kind of what I did. And it sounds like you're settling, but really your dream office is you know the one that you make it into. So as years go by, as months go by, I'll make changes to the office and eventually I'll look back and, you know, say I'm in my dream office. So yeah, I, I probably would have kept looking, but not too much longer. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying. There's like a balance between everything. Right. So wrapping up here, we've talked about a lot of different things when it comes to buying your practice and just your experience from graduating to now. Is there any final advice you want to give to the soon-to-be dentists and recent grads? Yeah. Um, Josh, what I'd say is I think a lot of dental students and dentists have uh, – like our lives have been structured for pretty much your whole life, right? Like you go to school, like you have teachers, uh, elementary school, high school, college, you have professors, and they sort of tell you what to do and you do it. Um, and then all of a sudden now you've graduated, you're a dentist, and you don't really have a ton of direction in life, right? Like there's nobody telling you that there's this assignment due on this day, you have to read these chapters, by this day, there's a test coming up. You're sort of just on your own. Um, and so I think the best piece of advice that I can give you is, and you probably heard it before, but don't worry about what other dentists are doing. So I had some classmates who bought an office the day after we graduated. And you kind of get that feeling, oh, you know, shoot, should I buy an office? We had some classmates who you know, a month after graduation, they were already placing tons of implants. And you say to yourself, well, God, do I need to go take an implant course? You have classmates who graduate and they're doing maxillary molar endo. And, you know, again, you say to yourself, should I be doing that? I need to take this course. <clears throat> I need to go and take this course. Um, just learn things at your own pace and at your own time is what I'd say. So, I mean... I spent the first year, year and a half just perfecting how to do a class two, in all honesty. I mean, that, and I still think that's the toughest thing to do in dentistry is drop in a box, make sure you don't nick the adjacent tooth, make sure it's all smooth, make sure there's contact when you fill, placing a, 
compositite. Um, so yeah, don't be, I think my advice is just don't be, um, don't feel like you're lagging behind just because you're still doing basic restorative dentistry two years out of dental school. Learn things at your own pace and things will come to you. Um, and so, yeah. That's nice and definitely reassuring, I think, for some people listening. So thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been really interesting getting to know you a little bit and hear more about your journey. If anyone has specific questions from stuff that you mentioned today, is there a good way for them to reach you? Yeah, actually, you could just reach me at my, I still use my Michigan email. <laughs> so <laughs> it's ndpa at umich.edu. Um, I honestly don't even mind giving my phone number if anybody wants to shoot a text. Um, I'm more than happy to answer text. So my number is 331-645-7737. Um, yeah, whatever anyone feels comfortable with, whatever they want to ask, go ahead. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.